Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everybody and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we're interviewing Elizabeth Graff, our first physician assistant, about her extensive work with providing menstrual and sexual and reproductive health care. And for our listeners who are new to the show, you can get a PDF of our show notes or be notified of upcoming guests so you can submit your questions by pledging a small monthly contribution to our show by becoming a patron of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast by going to www.patreon.com WCH. By becoming a monthly subscriber, not only do you get awesome benefits, but it helps us to continue providing free and awesome podcasts. You can also find out more on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com centeredhealth.com. And now a message from our sponsor. This episode of the Woman Centered Health Podcast is brought to you by the Diva Cup, the first to market ISO certified menstrual cup made of 100% medical grade silicone. As a better alternative to tampons and pads, Diva Cup is reusable, eco-friendly, comfortable, and offers up to 12 hours of leak-free protection. Have you told your patients about it yet? For more information and to request a demo kit, please email resource at divacup.com or visit divacup.com. Great. Let's learn more about Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. We like to start out by giving our listeners a little background about who you're speaking with. So if you could talk about yourself, about your background, your education and training, and where you currently work. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be doing this podcast on an area I'm passionate in, women's health. I'm originally from Des Moines, Iowa, currently residing in Iowa City. I uh, went to Grinnell College, and after graduating with a Bachelor of Arts, kind of wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with my life, and landed in research at the University of Minnesota, where my lab mate was applying to physician assistant school. And I'd really never heard of a physician assistant. But when I learned more about the profession, I thought this is exactly the right profession for me. So I uh, applied to the University of Iowa, which has a great program, and graduated in 2006 with my physician assistant degree. And I uh, worked at the Emma Goldman Clinic, which is a women's health clinic in Iowa City that provides comprehensive women's health care, including abortion services. And I mostly did their gynecology, contraception, STI testing. And then about a year into that, I applied to the University of Iowa to join the OBGYN department. And specifically, I'm in the Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Clinic, otherwise known as REI. And since I had a lot of experience with adolescents and college-age girls, sort of could see that there was this need for a clinic to specialize in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. So I staffed that particular clinic with Dr. Ginny Ryan and also realized that we had a need to treat girls with bleeding disorders. So we have an adolescent menorrhagia clinic where we collaborate with peds hematology because we have the only pediatric hematologist in the state at University of Iowa. And I also, just because we have, I have a lot of information about the 
menstrual cycle and hormones, started working towards my national certified menopause practitioner certification, which I've had for about 10 years now. And I have a menopause and sexual medicine clinic, which meets once a week. And when I first started, I worked with a great physician, William Davis, who had been seeing transgender patients for a long time, and he was looking for someone to pass on the torch of doing cross-gender hormone therapy. So I sort of dove into transgender medicine as well. We collaborate heavily with the LGBTQ clinic to care for our trans patients. We have a dedicated LGBTQ clinic at the University of Iowa, and we also work closely with that population to do a lot of other family building options. So it's a never a dull day over in my neck of the woods. Awesome. And you are our second guest from the University of Iowa. Dr. Pollock, Stacy Pollock, was our first. So we are really excited to have you on represent Iowa. <laughs> Thank you. Our next question that we always like to ask our guest is what informs your perspective and your practice? So why do you do what you do or what is most valuable to you? Yeah, I think that my training and then some of the different volunteer experiences I've had sort of made me feel really passionate about being an advocate for women's health. And when I graduated, I looked at some other jobs, but really felt like women's health was my calling and that I was most passionate about reproductive health. I just find a lot of joy in empowering patients in their family planning need, whether that be contraception or fertility treatment. Okay, so like we said, today we're going to discuss menstrual health, so let's jump right in. So we have recently read some articles and have heard some things about how a person's period is important to assess as it can be a a window into their overall health. What is your perception of the link between menstrual health and overall health? Yeah, I think that the menstrual cycle is unrecognized vital sign you know, a vital sign being like blood pressure, height, weight, body temperature. For example, sometimes women who are underweight don't menstruate and women who are overweight don't menstruate. Sometimes if there are significant stressors, women will not menstruate or if they have thyroid conditions or diabetes. So there definitely is a link between health and um, whether or not you're having a period. And so that's often what brings patients in to see me is wondering what's going on with their periods or lack of periods. Just out of curiosity, do you find that when women do come in with some sort of period related concern that there is some underlying factor other than like maybe just related to her period that are causing her issues? Yeah, I think that you could think about it as the timing. For example, a period is usually comes between 25 and 35 days and lasts around two to seven days. So looking at the pattern of when that comes is often influenced by endocrine factors. So I mentioned thyroid, diabetes. Many of your listeners might be familiar with a disease called polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is where women don't usually get their period very often. And those are whether you get your period monthly is sort of determined by endocrine factors. And then there can be other problems with periods like period is so heavy or so painful. Interesting. Yeah. So I occasionally will have a young girl come in who has had periods, but then maybe is running track and 
her periods have disappeared. She's often also working and watching what she's eating very closely and maybe not quite eating enough calories for how much output she's doing with track. And so when we're talking about what to do, sometimes my patients will prefer to try to change their diet, work with a nutritionist to get that right amount of calories per day so that their period will then return. Some providers might just say, oh, take a birth control pill, which is okay too. But if you're thinking about the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, then sometimes it's nice to then see it return. So I just want to ask about one thing that you had mentioned. You had talked about that if you're thinking about the period as a fifth vital sign, you alluded to that maybe you have like a different lens than when you're looking at menstrual health issues. Could you maybe explore that a little more? Like, well, you had mentioned that, you know, if you're looking at the period as a vital sign with this girl who runs track, that maybe you would look at nutrition or changing her diet, but you would otherwise could just say, hey, here's some birth control. And you had mentioned that if you have a lens that maybe you would respond differently. Yeah, I think oftentimes you almost choose your lens. So if the patient's interested in birth control, then you might choose contraceptive option as a solution. But you could potentially choose a non-hormonal IUD, like the Paragard copper IUD, because then if her period came back, it would not mask that. But not every patient who's 16 will necessarily want to have an IUD, so they may opt for a different option. So that's a lens that might be guided by the patient's goals. So if you can understand what the patient's goals might be, the goal is that they want to know when they're at a weight and a nutritional status that their period resumes, then we would want to pick a way that would allow them to see that. Interesting. Another topic that we got into on another podcast was about health literacy with your body. So when it comes to the menstrual cycle and all that it entails in your clinical experience, how would you describe your patient's menstrual cycle literacy? Yeah, I uh, I think it's very varied. And I think age does play a role. So I think moms often have a conversation and sometimes dads, good for them, with their daughters about periods and what to expect and maybe thinking about pads and helping their daughter have those available. But I don't know that women really know what to expect until they finally have a period and then also a pattern of the period starts to appear. And so I've had some young girls who had a first period and didn't realize that it was way too heavy and that they needed to get medical attention because they were bleeding excessively. So in that case, even though their parents had prepared them for a period, they didn't really know that they should be telling their parent that they had terrible bleeding and that they needed to go to the doctor. And I've had a few girls, probably at least a dozen, that have had to have a blood transfusion with their first period. So even though you might try to prepare your daughter uh, it's one of those things you have to kind of experience to really understand it. And then I have some women that are in, incredibly in tune with their bodies. And I think that the rise of menstrual apps has really helped women understand their menstrual cycles better, to know what's normal and to see if their periods are falling into a normal range and they're having a normal amount of flow and when they may or may not be ovulating. And so sometimes patients will come in with pages and pages and months and months of data for me to look at. So it can be quite the range of literacy about the menstrual cycle. 
Yeah, I imagine working with adolescents, you're you're seeing that range for sure. I know when I first started my period, it was heavy and I had my mom had given me a book about, you know, women's health, teens, and it said something in there about heavy periods being something with anemia. And I just immediately was like, anemia. That sounds like leukemia. I have cancer. (laughs) 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 So it was funny now, but you know, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. And it took a lot for me to tell my mom about that. (laughs) And so I can't imagine, especially with girls getting their period, I think a lot earlier over the course of generations that they're kind of not well equipped. (laughs) I think the other interesting point you bring up too is, My mom definitely didn't really talk to me about it. I remember getting it in school, but I don't know that amount was necessarily a topic included in that. So it's interesting that you bring that up as a point where women may or may not know or teens know a lot about. And and yeah, I kind of feel like amount was missed. And then I guess at the same time, how would you describe amount in a meaningful way at that age? So I guess I'd be interested, like, how do you describe or would recommend maybe we've got some moms listening who are like, oh my gosh, yeah, I didn't think about amount or this whole big topic. Like, what are some pointers you would say when it comes to that? Yeah, that's something that when you're taking a history, I think is really important to quantify. So some people will say, I have a heavy period. And then I will say, oh, do you use tampons or pads? And then they'll give their answer. And then I'll ask, well, how often are you changing that? And it's getting into the danger zone if you're changing a heavy pad, like a thick pad or a super tampon in less than an hour or even two hours if it's going on for several days in a row. So that is getting into the danger zone. I also talk about passing of clots. So if you have clots that are greater than a quarter or anytime you have a clot the size of a lemon, then that would be a reason to call in. And also I talk about this idea of flooding your tampon or pad. So you just gush around it or the pad fills and just comes over the edge. And so a good question is, are you ever bleeding through your clothes? So if your daughter is bleeding through her clothes and she's changing, you know, if you bleed through your clothes and you had your pad on for 12 hours, then maybe you just need to change your pad more. But if it happened in less than four hours and it was a heftier pad, then that would be another thing to maybe bring up to the pediatrician when you're in or schedule an appointment with me. We have a pediatric and adolescent gynecology clinic. So we're trying to make gynecology a little bit more accessible to adolescents because their pediatrician may just not have as much knowledge about gynecologic issues. And then the other last thing I like to describe is, does it ever look like a murder scene in the morning when you wake up? Blood everywhere type of thing where you're having to change the sheets. It's funny. We talked about murder scenes in relation to the Diva Cup when we were interviewing them. So (laughs) it's funny that you bring that that up too. (laughs) Yes. And uh, so I mentioned that we have had a few girls that have needed blood transfusion because they didn't realize that what was going on was outside of normal. And oftentimes that's when you'll discover that a, a young woman has a bleeding disorder. And so when we got into the area of pediatric and adolescent gynecology, we found the need to partner with the pediatric hematologists because they have a group of young girls with bleeding disorders that are just having pretty miserable periods. So getting those girls to keep track of what's going on with their flow is really important because they might need some of these high-tech medications like Stymate that help stop bleeding or factors that are really expensive or a blood transfusion. So 
one of the things that we often recommended them is Diva Cup because you can actually measure with a lot of those menstrual cups exactly how much blood you're losing because there's a marker on it. I believe the standard Diva Cup is 30 milliliters. So that's often really helpful when we're trying to estimate how much blood someone's lost is to just have it measured. So as we're kind of talking about the things that you assess with girls and women who are coming in, just kind of unpacking that a little bit more. So a lot of women seek medical care for period concerns that may be abnormal, like irregular bleeding or heavy periods or vaginal bleeding after menopause. Can you walk us through how a conversation might look with these patients? Any other questions that you might have other than the amount of bleeding, that type of thing? Uh, Yeah, I think one reason why I really like women's health is because women often will come to you with their problems because they're miserable or concerned. And so I often find that they're really motivated to understand what's going on more. So I think I do quite a bit of teaching about the menstrual cycle and what it looks like and how long it should be. And I ask a lot of questions about the interval between the periods and how many days of flow and the heaviness and pain. And if a patient is having a concern, that might include some laboratory testing mentioned earlier that the thyroid is a big player in menstrual abnormalities. So pretty much everyone I see gets their thyroid checked. And there are other endocrine problems that can cause irregular menstrual cycle. But we just absolutely love ultrasound. It is a remarkable tool for us in gynecology. And we have some of the best sonographers that we work with who just are constantly getting positive feedback from patients. So I will often recommend that an ultrasound would be helpful for us to figure out more about what's going on. So if a patient has an irregular period, the ovaries have sometimes this pearled appearance. And so that can lead me to a diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome. For a patient who's having postmenopausal bleeding, the lining of the uterus is called the endometrium. And if that's thick, then that's concerning for possible abnormal cells. But if it's very thin, then that's reassuring that it's unlikely that there's abnormal cells. So ultrasound is a tool that I use quite frequently as well. And so, you know, we might just discuss sort of what a workup might be. I often say we need to go on a fact-finding mission, get some blood work done, and just see when a patient might be comfortable getting those tests and moving forward with the workup. So when you talk about tests, I know that we had mentioned in our phone call women who want to have their hormones checked. Mm -hmm. I know that this was kind of a contested area. So how do you talk to women when they say they want their hormones checked? Yeah, I think that it's a difficult task because the menstrual cycle is amazing in the amount of variation of hormones. So hormones are going up and down and all over the place in order for a follicle to grow and an egg to be released. So there's just a remarkable amount of changes. And so a lot of women have heard of estrogen, progesterone, and then some other uh, hormones called follicle-stimulating hormone, which is what produces a follicle, and luteinizing hormone, which is what releases the egg from the follicle. And so if you want to check someone's hormones, then often what I'm trying to get at is, well, what's the patient's concern and which one of those tests would fit with them having the information to know what's going on with their body. So let's say that a patient's having an irregular period. Maybe their cycle's 42 days, which is a little longer than normal. And so they're wondering if they're still ovulating or not. And you can draw a progesterone level around day 21 of the cycle. And if it's 
elevated, then the patient is ovulating. So that would be a great test for that particular patient who's wondering if their hormones are off. But oftentimes when patients tell me that their hormones are off, they're actually having a period each month. And so to me, you know that all that up and down and variation of the hormones is occurring to result in a period. And so oftentimes what I'm finding is that it's women that feel hormonal right before their period comes, which is a syndrome called premenstrual syndrome. So then what they're describing to me is that they're suffering from PMS. And then we talk a little bit about what's going on with their body at that time and what are some of the different things that they can do to help their symptoms. So then if someone does have PMS, how do you talk about that in a way that makes patients feel at ease or that they're not crazy? Yeah, I think that one of the things that's helpful for women is to just see how dynamic the menstrual cycle is and how many changes are happening. And we're all dealing with those changes. We're trying to. And it can be hard because especially as women enter time of their life called perimenopause, which is the stage of life right before your period stops, often the ovary is struggling to keep up and the peaks and valleys of those hormone changes can be even larger and more dynamic. And just telling women that, well, of course you're feeling this way because look at all of this change. And then I mentioned that there are some great apps and there's just dozens and dozens. But if you just start tracking your cycle, often having insight into what's going on with your body helps women to then say, oh, yep, here's the week that I'm going to have a lot of hormone changes and maybe I should make sure to get good sleep sleep and eat right and maybe not do that stressful thing that I was planning on. So that often is the first step, I think. And then some women will ask for help beyond just sort of the insight and lifestyle changes. And again, I usually talk about a lot of different options, but I can sometimes tell who wants a, one of the main treatments that we might choose is a antidepressant or a SSRI. And a lot of patients just, that's not an option for them. They don't want to take medication. I've recommended acupuncture as well. Try to just feel out a patient and see who might be more interested in a natural or alternative medicine treatment or who wants to take an antidepressant or also hormone therapy and other types of birth control can help PMS as well. So just trying to figure out what the patient's goals are and what they want for their own body is really essential. At the beginning of what you just said there, you talked about showing the patients how dynamic their menstrual cycle is. Can you talk more about that, how you do that in your practice? Yeah. So I have a picture of the menstrual cycle that looks at the hormone levels and also what the ovary is doing and what the uterus is doing. And then it looks at from cycle day one all the way through cycle day 28. I think looking at a visual is really helpful. So I use that chart quite a bit. Do you remember where you got that chart? Just if we can provide a link to that for our listeners. Yeah, I usually hit images and then find this particular one. You can send it to us later. Yeah. That's okay. If anything, after the show, we can find it and then we can put it in our show notes. And so yeah. so then our listeners can find the, the exact graphic that you use in our show notes. That'd be great. Yeah. That'd be great. Okay, perfect. And I, yeah, I mean, you'd pretty much answer that, but I was going to ask if it seems like if you do feel they have a sense of peace after looking at that and, and mapping how they're feeling in relation to the cycle, if that really helps. 
I think so. I think oftentimes women come to their annual exam and then there isn't enough time to address some of their concerns. And so just coming and having a visit dedicated to their menstrual health, I think they feel really good about just getting more information and understanding their menstrual cycle better. Interesting. And so it sounds like you work in some more specialty area clinics. And so do you have women who are referred to you? Yes, I do do some primary care, but mostly I am a more of a, I have a lot of specialty clinics. So if I have a patient who had that annual exam and is having terrible perimenopausal symptoms, or they saw their pediatrician and the pediatrician thought, huh, this seems a little beyond me, then they'll refer them to me, to my pediatric adolescent gynecology clinic, or to my, again, that mouthful, reproductive endocrinology and infertility clinic, or REI, or to my menopause and sexual medicine clinic. And it's nice because I get about a half an hour just to focus on the patient's reproductive concern. So just out of curiosity then, for the women who are referred to you for all the myriad of things you just went through, do you ever get the feeling that they felt like they've been like judged or stigmatized or brushed off by other providers when it comes to menstrual concerns? Yeah, I think that a lot of primary care providers have their niche. And so if they don't know a lot about the menstrual cycle, then hopefully the provider is good at referring that they have a good relationship with an OBGYN or they're aware of our clinics so that they can refer them to get the care that they need. And I have some patients who just say, wow, this is so great. I didn't get any of this from my local provider. And I think, well, that's because today we get to focus entirely on this issue. And sometimes you know that that primary care provider has 15 minutes to do a comprehensive exam and check in in about everything from A to Z. And we're just focusing on M, menstrual health. So I think it does feel good to patients to get the education about their menstrual cycle on that particular issue. So how do you minimize feelings of shame or being brushed off then when you're meeting with these patients? I think one of the things I try to do is use the medical terms for the reproductive tract, like the vagina. So hopefully that just rolls off my tongue. (laughs) But I know that might not be a word that people use at home, or they may say it like, vagina. So hopefully when I say those words to the patient, it just sounds like any other medical term. And then that might then give them a language to then talk to me. They can then use those terms when describing their concerns. And if you're in your daily life and you're hearing things like bleeding out of her, whatever, and then, I mean, of course there's that shame and stigma, but then if you come to see me and I'm using the terms without any stigma to them, then hopefully that allows people to feel more comfortable comfortable in describing their concerns to me. So can I just circle back a little bit to your discussion about ultrasound and exams and checking blood and that type of thing? So I'm assuming that with your adolescent patients or even your older patients that maybe we have a upcoming episode about trauma-informed care, so women experiencing sexual trauma. So how do you go through the different diagnostic things that they may need, like a transvaginal ultrasound or pelvic exam? And how do you walk them through discomfort with that? 
Yeah, I think we do get a lot of patients that come from very far away. And so it was a burden for them to drive all the way to see me. And so we always, most of our patients have an ultrasound scheduled just in case we need it, but they don't have to have it that day if they don't want to. And I try to explain the procedure. And you can also ask questions like, do you have any trouble with exams have you ever had an ultrasound before? How did you do? Is there anything that helps you when you're preparing for an exam or an ultrasound? Some people like to bring an advocate with them, which is great, or they just want to be better prepared. So I think a lot of women do come prepared to have an exam when they come to the gynecologist. So they've gotten themselves mentally prepared for that particular procedure. But if they haven't, then I'm okay with them coming back. There's always more time. So patients can meet me and see if I seem scary to them or if they like me. And then if they feel comfortable, then I think that really helps them in trusting that I'm recommending that procedure in order to help get to the bottom of whatever's going on and achieve their goal of feeling better or solving that issue. I have a question for adolescents in particular who maybe you need to do a pap pelvic exam and this is their first one. Do you approach that or discuss that differently? And if so, in what ways do you approach that differently with adolescents or someone who's doing that for the first time? Well, I usually try to say something like, I want you to have a good experience at the gynecologist. We don't have to do an exam today although it would be helpful to get some imaging done. Have you heard about an ultrasound? Have you heard about a vaginal ultrasound? And we can do it that way. Or often you can do an abdominal ultrasound. You just need to fill the bladder, which takes about an hour to fill someone's bladder because what it does is filling the bladder helps you see down through the abdomen into the uterus and ovaries. So we can offer that as an alternative. And most people are very fine with just having the abdominal ultrasound that doesn't feel invasive to them. And I try to, let's say that the adolescent patient's having some vaginal discharge, they can do a swab themselves. And so I can leave the room and their parent can leave the room and if they feel comfortable, just do it themselves. So that's something that I employ heavily. STD testing can also be done just through the urine. So there are a lot of ways to help adolescents get the testing they need without making them feel uncomfortable or just waiting until they do feel comfortable. Or yeah, because sometimes just meeting me and trying lesser things is good, but then we reach a point where it seems necessary to get a more invasive exam. So then in the event that you need to use a speculum to examine them, what does that conversation look like? Yeah, I think that describing the exam, showing them the speculum, those things can be really helpful. I usually describe that there's a bunch of muscles right at the opening and that we're just getting up and over them and then giving them visuals because it's hard to know how to relax those muscles. But if the patient is relaxed, the exam goes a thousand times better. So focusing on a lot of deep breaths right before we place the speculum, I always ask patients if right before I put the speculum in, if they feel ready. And so then they have one more chance to just say, no, no, please, I'm changing my mind. But I found that to be just a, another way of just making sure that I have the patient's consent before I do an exam. And then I usually use the smallest speculum that I possibly can in order to see what I need to see. Great. So let's switch gears now and talk a little bit about menstrual hygiene. Can you explain more about what that term means and how providers can talk about this with their patients? Yeah, I think when you're discussing with a patient what their periods are like, we talked about 
earlier about what health literacy do patients have about their menstrual cycles. And I again think that it is often age-related that young girls need the most discussion about what they can do. One of the things that seems really difficult for these young girls is that they get a very short amount of time in the bathroom during school. And so they're just racing to try to swap out a pad or a tampon. And especially if they're having heavy periods and they're flooding them every two hours, then you can imagine that there are things I can talk about to help them through this situation. So using both a tampon and a pad can be helpful. But when you have a 13-year-old in your clinic, some of them, maybe their parents don't feel like tampons are a good fit for them. So, And that may be a religious or a family recommendation. And so I often just say, well, that's okay. But it does help quite a bit, I think, when you have heavy flow. Going back to first period experiences, I got mine when I was in the middle of a basketball tournament in Utah with a traveling basketball team. My mom had sent like the thickest pads and I tried playing in it and it just shredded and fell out onto the court and it was terrible. Oh no. So I think these young girls are often active or they're swimming or they're in volleyball shorts or gymnastics or dance. And so being able to utilize a tampon can be really helpful for certain activities. And there is a great website called youngwomenshealth.org that has some guidance on how to use a tampon. And I'm very frequently referring patients to that website so that they can start experimenting with maybe trying to use one. Well, the reason why I didn't try a tampon at that point in time was because my mom had given me the super plus ones with a cardboard applicator. So there was no way I was going to attempt that. But they make these tiny little ones now so young girls can have more success when they're attempting to put one in. Also, when it comes to hygiene, do you get into any conversations about fragrances or cardboard versus plastic or chemicals or another thing kind of related to this would be any cleaning products? Do you get into all that? Oh, yeah. So basically everything out there about menstrual hygiene is wrong. So I saw an ad for vaginal deodorant on Facebook the other day, and I so wanted to comment and say, not recommended by your (laughs) friendly gynecologist. But the reproductive tract includes the vagina and the uterus and the tubes and the ovaries. But also important is the vulvar health. And I think that's what we're talking about sometimes when we're thinking about hygiene is just the vulva can get irritated sometimes with using pads. And especially if they, I I do not recommend any kind of fragrances or chemicals. I like to think of the vulva as a delicate flower. And so you wouldn't want to put any harsh chemicals in that area. And you don't want to scrub it either. I think women think that they should scrub with a washcloth and just imagine the delicate petals of a flower that would be too harsh. So we have a great clinic in our OBGYN department called the Vulvovaginal Disease Specialty Clinic. And they have a great list of guidelines of do's and don'ts for care of the vulva. So basically all the things you've heard of are don'ts. And so we just try to educate people about what are the do's. And it's amazing. And people are really wedded to their personal care routines. So sometimes it can be difficult to break those habits. But hopefully people, once they started adapting them, realize that it's they feel better. Can you talk, maybe get in a little bit more about like, so for the patient who is committed to their wash or whatever, what does that conversation look like to maybe get them to stop using that? 
They are welcome to use their wash anywhere they want, except for the vulva. So they can still use it, just not on the vulvar tissues, just the hand and water is really all you need to care for the vulva. And actually, I think women are often told that baths sometimes aren't good for the urinary tract, like it might make you get a bladder infection, but baths are incredibly good for the vulvar tissues. And I think once you hit a certain age, like 10 years old, basically women are showering. They don't sit and soak as much except for maybe as a self-care thing, like, oh, I'm stressed out. I'm going to pop this bath bomb in and get a book and a glass of wine. And But actually, a bath can be really good as long as you urinate right when you get out, because then that flushes the urethra, and then you won't get a bladder infection. And bath bombs are super, super popular right now, but they actually are terrible for the vulvar health. So I was going to ask you, like, as just a person who enjoys a bath for self-care and for women listening, yeah, what is your perception of bath bombs? Because I have a ton of them. (laughs) Yeah, so I think if your tissues are really healthy and don't be afraid to look, I think you can tell when the tissues red and angry that that's probably not the best time for a bath bomb. But if you use one and then your tissues feel irritated, then you probably aren't meant for bath bombs, but you can put some baking soda into the tub. And I encourage people to put some aromatherapy in the bathroom so that you're still getting kind of the benefits of lavender or relaxation from essential oils, but it's not affecting your vulvar tissues. Noted. (laughs) It's a big disappointment. I'm like, oh man. (laughs) If it's not bothering you, maybe you're fine. (laughs) If it's not bothering you, great. But often when women come in with those concerns... That's the culprit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole list of things too, from laundry detergents to scented pads or tampons. If patients feel like they have an odor and everyone has an odor and everyone has some discharge, but if they feel like it's excessive or they have odor, then a bath is a really great thing to kind of reset the vulvar and vaginal health. But I do think if I could make a complaint that 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 is an area where I think women are just heavily focused on that they are not clean. And really, it does not take much to promote vulvar health. So I think that it seems like women are unfairly targeted, not see men as concerned about their scrotum. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny. This is totally tangential, but I remember seeing like a Facebook meme or something and it was like for men, they have the shampoo, body wash, face washes all in one bottle. Yeah. So your shower regimen. Yeah. Like it's all one bottle. And then for women, they have 37 products. Cause it's like, well, this is to wash your eyes. This is to wash your face. This is the shampoo and conditioner. And then you're also going to need a separate treatment for your hair. And then, yeah, like you said, now you've got this special wash just for your vulva and then the special wash for the rest of your body. And so it, it really is interesting. You mentioned that, that yeah. And women completely think that, yeah, you do need the special wash or special care. And so to bring that up and, and how do you get women to change their routines? I feel like once you get set your shower routine, I'm this person that I'm like, you want me to change my routine? What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I tried to validate that of course this is your your routine this is what makes you feel ready for the day this is what makes you feel good about your body but if we could tweak this so that it fit a little bit better with your reproductive health that would be ideal I think that that's a great little tidbit just saying that do you have any other things that you find yourself saying a lot and this could be about any topic but that you're like you know I talk about this stuff a lot do you have any other kind of little bits like that that you find yourself saying 
One thing I might say is that patients often come to me to be further educated and to hear about options and find really feel like I practice personalized medicine, just understanding what the patient's goals are using a lens that matches up with their goals and that sometimes we don't do anything that particular day, but sometimes heavy flow is not a big deal. For other women who might wear a lot of leotards and dance, that might be a really big problem. So they may be more interested in other options. And so I often will say that to patients, well, it's okay to just take this information and if you feel miserable later, then we can do something about it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So kind of circling back to menstrual hygiene specifically, a topic that has been getting some attention in journals like the Green Journal, for example, is that some women have really poor access to menstrual hygiene products, specifically homeless women or low-income women. Do you have any experience with patients who have this concern? I have. I think what I hear from patients is just how expensive menstrual hygiene products are. And so that's one reason why an investment in a menstrual cup can be so great if patients are willing to use it. Like I mentioned before, people have a lot of variation in what they're interested in using, whether it be tampons or pads. And the idea of a menstrual cup might not work with my 13-year-old, but my 30-year-old might love it. So I definitely hear that from patients, especially the girls with bleeding disorders, that shelling out a lot of money for their menstrual care. And I also have some girls with disabilities and their parents are just, it's hard for them to use tampons and pads and to change and to be aware of that. So there's a specific kind of underwear called Thinks, but they're super expensive. So a family that has a patient with disabilities may not be able to afford those because they've got other medical concerns. So I think it's true that that is a big concern. I have heard that there is toilet paper is free usually in the United States, not in other countries necessarily, but why aren't just some extra menstrual hygiene products free as well? That'd be great. But as a department, one of the nurse midwives, Rebecca Winnicky, she has been making menstrual packs for the homeless in the Iowa City area, which can include pads and tampons and some ibuprofen for cramps, because I think that is a big issue for homeless women is access to menstrual care products. So uh, around the holidays is when she's making the packs and we're donating pads and tampons and other things that we think would be helpful for that population. All the providers or staff at your office are just kind of all donating on your own. Yeah. Dying sort of thing. Okay. And she's making those on her own time. Yes, she is. Yep. That's, that's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. So you had mentioned, and I know previously in our phone call, we had talked about this too, that you also see trans patients in your clinic. Can you talk about the concerns that trans people who get periods have shared with you in your practice? Yeah, so I see all types of trans individuals, non-binary individuals. And so again, I think it really depends on the lens at the patient's specific goals. So I have some transgender men who just really find it to be difficult to have a period. And so they really like the effects of taking testosterone because it turns off the period, which is great because then they feel that fits more with their gender identity. 
So that is a problem that I often have. So a patient will come in who's trans and says, I'm having bleeding and spotting or my periods haven't gone away. And that can be really difficult for patients who might wear boxers. And then what do you do for menstrual care when you're wearing boxers? So there are different things that we can do. Sometimes increasing the testosterone dose can help suppress periods further. But usually that does not require an exam. So that's helpful. Occasionally, though, we do want to do an ultrasound. And I had mentioned that sometimes looking at the lining of the uterus can be really helpful. Is it thick or is it thin? Because then that may guide me towards further testing if it's too thick versus too thin. And so if an ultrasound is warranted, then we talked a little bit about how that might be even more dysphoric for a transgender patient. And luckily, my sonographers are just really great to work with and they have been able to make the patients feel comfortable. And some are totally fine with a transvaginal ultrasound and others really want to have the abdominal ultrasound and that's fine. I think it uh, helps to think outside the box. So if I have a non-binary patient who just wants to be on a low dose of testosterone, it might not take away their period in the same way that being on a high dose of testosterone might. And they may choose to have an IUD placed and that might help further suppress their period. So again, just trying to figure out what the patient's goal is. Not everybody wants to be on high doses of testosterone. There's a lot of variation in what people desire. And then really just focusing on how to make that person feel comfortable. So I love to just meet the person, say, okay, you know, here are some options. What would you like to do? Would you like to come back with a support person. Sometimes I sedate people just because they just would feel more comfortable. A lot of people actually ask me if they can be completely knocked out. And well, not a lot, but it's not an uncommon request. So I'm always okay with giving somebody something to relax. It seems totally reasonable to me to help create an environment where people can feel like they're more in control. So one thing I've noticed that you have talked about throughout the entire interviews, you talk about the idea of changing your lens and then also their goals and that you change your lens based on what a patient's goal is. And so I'm just curious, I mean, other than the obvious, like maybe you just ask, what is your goal? But how do you elicit like what the patient's goal is to then inform the lens or the perspective that you take? Yeah, I think that uh, I always try to give the patient some time to talk. I think the average amount of time that providers allow a patient to talk is like 10 seconds or something crazy short, but they recommend two minutes. But then I mentioned before, some people might not have the language in which to address their problems. So they want to have a back and forth with you. So once we've established rapport, I often just like to say, well, what are your goals for today's visit? Write them down. So that then they can say, well, no, not quite that, this, and then I can make sure I've got the goal right. And then I like to just say, what else? What else? And then once they've sort of exhausted their concerns, then I say, well, I have some thoughts too. Here's some things I'd like to address. And then here's what I think we have time for today. And think given the number of things on our list probably need to have some additional follow-up visits. But I think that has worked really well. It does take more time, which time is difficult to find in the medical field, but then I think it's clear that we're on the same page. And I think in other interviews, we have found too that people will say, you know, the initial visit tends to be a little longer or it can run over, but maybe subsequent visits then are much shorter. or You can keep that time a lot easier. Do you find that to be the case? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. 
Yeah, I like that idea of writing them down. I don't think we've heard that yet. That's a great, and I think that kind of goes into if you have signed up at our website or with your email or are a patron and get our show notes, we have a sheet that patients can fill out. And that is one of the Mm -hmm. questions that we have is what is your goal for today? Something like that. But I love that idea of writing it down and going through all of those and making sure you have it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think on our sheet, we talk about yeah, pronouns. And what is your goal for today? Has anything changed or things I need to be aware of? Yeah. So I think that you talk about writing it down. You got a sheet you could just give them and (laughs) you can write it right on there. (laughs) And the pronoun thing I I guess it's such second nature to me now, but now Epic has the ability to have the patient's preferred name. And so trans patients or non-binary patients can tell you what their preferred name is and it will show up in their chart so that then we can start off the visit getting right to developing a relationship of trust because I can use the name they prefer. There's a term called dead naming in the trans community. And so that can really be triggering and dysphoric for patients. So using their old name or somebody sometimes trying to just, well, what's your real name? They get that question a lot, which is, again, if you're trying to build rapport and trust with someone that... Not the best way. <laughs> great. Yeah, it's great to get off on the right foot using the preferred name. Even though it's there, I still confirm, is this the name you prefer? And then do you have pronouns you prefer? And some people are just still searching and trying things out and may feel different at the start of their gender transition than at the end. So it's always good to ask and confirm what pronouns patients prefer. And I think that trans patients have had a lot of negative experiences with the healthcare community. And so I like to wear a pin. And the one I have right now is pink and blue, which is the trans flag, which ties in nicely to my other work as infertility, pink and blue baby. And it says, hashtag, I'll go with you, which means that you would accompany someone into the bathroom of their choice. And I just like that and that particular one. So I think people who are trans see it and they feel more at ease because I think it's difficult for patients to come in and talk about their menstrual concerns. And so I think it's even more heightened in trans and non-binary people. So I really encourage anybody who works with the LGBTQ population to just put a little pin on your shirt or your coat just to indicate that you're an ally. Well, I think that's great. And I could definitely see, yeah, I mean, it would be awkward enough to just talk about menstrual care to begin with because it is such like a hush-hush taboo topic. And then to have that extra layer of complexity would definitely make it more difficult. And just an aside for our listeners, we do have a four-part series on LGBTQ health, and we go in a bit more about some of these terms that Elizabeth is using, like dysphoria. Non-binary, yeah. Yeah, non-binary. And so that is a good one to listen to if you aren't familiar with some of these terms. Mm Mm-hmm. So you mentioned a couple resources along the way, but do you have any other good resources for providers when it comes to menstrual health and menstrual hygiene? Yeah, the one that I use just all the time with my pediatric and adolescent gynecology clinic is youngwomenshealth.org. And that is the Center for Young Women's Health, which is a division of peds, adolescents, and gynecology at Boston Children's Hospital. And that's been around for a long time. And they have even some online chat sites for girls to use. I like that a lot. And they also have Spanish language translations too. The language is geared towards adolescents. So I like that too, that it doesn't have as much 
technical jargon. And then uh, another one that is published by the Guttmacher Institute, and if you're not familiar, I'm sure you are, but the listeners aren't familiar with it. It's a research organization that works to educate and advance sexual and reproductive health. So they publish a website called stayteen.org. It's a little bit more edgy, a little bit more for the teen who's maybe dealing with a lot of the classic issues of when contraception, sex, boyfriends, complicated relationships with with their teenage girlfriends. So, you know, for my 13-year-old, I might direct them more towards young women's health. And for my patient who's 18, who's maybe starting college, I might direct them more towards stay teen. You had also mentioned some apps that women were using to track their menstrual cycles. Do you have one that you find as a provider that you prefer the interface on or the information that's being tracked that say you're in a new encounter and you're like, hey, there's this app, which do you find that you prefer? I don't actually have a preference. I was just going through one for myself and found that there are just hundreds of them. And most of them have the ability to average out your menstrual cycle length. And so most of them have just a basic function. And then you can pay more for more sophisticated analysis, like when might you be ovulating and you can put in more data. And if you have a smartphone, if you have an iPhone, for example, and you go to the health application, then it does have information for menstrual cycles on it. So that's just already on your phone, but it is kind of buried. So I think that great thing about a phone app is everybody has their phones with them at all times. So you might not have your calendar with you. Well, some people do, but you might not want to put all your period information on your Outlook calendar, for example. (laughs) So... um, But so it's very easy if you're out and about and you get your period, then you can just quick pop that data point into your app. So a popular one is Flow, which, you know, there's that character Aunt Flow that, <laughs> oh, my, my period has come. Aunt Flo is visiting me. So I think that's where they got the name. So I see a lot of people using that one, but there are a lot of them. And I think, again, just most people probably can use a free app and then buy the add-ons if they need it. Okay. Didn't know if you had a preference. Yeah, and I didn't know that about the health app and iPhone either. No. And then in terms of some other resources, we often, for the REI clinic, the Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Clinic, try to look to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. They sort of help guide us with best practices, and they have a lot of good resources for women that have an endocrine disorder called polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS or PCOS, which is a very common thing we see that can make it more difficult to get pregnant. So that's a good website, a little bit more technical jargon on asrm.org. And so for a long time, our clinic has recommended a website called soulsisters.com, which instead of the traditional spelling of sisters, it's actually C-Y-S-T-E-R-S. So playing on the polycystic ovarian syndrome, so soul sisters. And there's a lot of great information on that website and also a lot of message board where I think that A lot of my patients have found that to be really helpful to connect with other women that have PCOS. Interesting. We recently had someone reach out to us that that was her specialty. And so that would be nice to have on our podcast as well. So hopefully we get that worked out. Do you have any other communication tips for our providers? Well, I think that this is an area that I'm constantly striving to do better in. And I think when you go to school, you learn the medical science and you don't really learn a lot about the emotional science behind seeing patients. So now that I've been doing this for 12 years, I feel like I've 
finally gotten better at, you know, like you said, figuring out the patient's goals and just trying to feel like I'm providing patients with the emotional support and the medical knowledge that they need, even though they might have a concern that they feel empowered that they have a partner in me for their medical care. And so I think the podcasts like this are great to sort of dissect the way in which we're communicating with patients and how important language is and how just some simple changes can really sometimes improve the way that your patient communication and then that eventual that way the patient feels when they leave. So I think this is great. And I think when I mentioned about writing down their goals, that providers also shouldn't be afraid to write down their goals too. Well, it's great to hear what the patient says, and then you can maybe add a couple goals of your own to make sure you're not forgetting to address something like, let's say they have diabetes, you still maybe want to talk about the ways in which adequate treatment of their diabetes can improve their menstrual health. But I also think your next podcast on trauma-informed care will be really great for listeners as well, because sometimes that prevents patients from reaching their goals and understanding that patients are struggling with trauma. And that may be why, as a duo of patient and provider, you're having a hard time reaching your goals. No, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. So I'll look forward to listening to that podcast. Yes. Yeah. So Nicole and I would both like to thank you so much for taking your time today to speak with us and just for your continued time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through your communication and your practice. Do you have any last thoughts before we end? I don't have any final thoughts, but thanks again for having me on. It's been a great experience. Great. Well, thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. 